I would like for you to prepare by turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. Last week we had a, a departure from our, st- our study in Genesis. And um, the first of the year, quite frankly, um, yet we are going to jump back in with gusto here, uh, both feet first as we study in Genesis chapter 25 and chapter 26 today, um, the narrative of Isaac, Jacob, Esau, and Rebekah. And so as we look at our text um, of Genesis 25 verse 19 uh, through 26 verse 34, what we're going to see is God's ability to expand his promise secures his presence with his people. God's ability to expand his promise secures his presence with his people. That's what we're going to see. That is what the theme of this section is. I've entitled the message, God's Promise Expanded, God's Presence Secured. God's Promise Expanded, God's Presence Secured. Now, there's a lot that goes on in chapters 25 and 26. And so um, what we really need to do is we need to understand where God's going with this because the narrator, Moses, is being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this particular narration in this particular order. What we have in, in chapter 25, verses 19 and following through the end of the chapter is a quick summation of Isaac's life and posterity, passing along the blessing to his next generation. We're going to discover in chapter 25 that Isaac uh, has twins through Rebekah, Laban's sister. Um, this would be Abraham's um, brother's daughter. And so what we find here is chapter 25 is sort of summary. It's sort of a summary of that short, it's a short synopsis of what we're going to see for 10 more chapters. And the main theme that we're going to see in the 10 chapters to come is God promised to bless Isaac. The blessing of Isaac is what is being discussed in chapters 25 to chapters 35. Now you say, wait a minute, Pastor, I'm skimming ahead in my Bible and I have little headings here and I see in my Bible that Um, Isaac doesn't get talked about a whole lot in those 10 chapters. It seems to be mostly like Jacob and a little bit of Esau, salt and pepper in there, and a dude named Laban and a bunch of girls. Um, So what, what do you mean by that? Well, remember, Genesis has been revealing to us that God's promise to Adam and Eve in the, the garden was a promise of a seed that would be a crimson thread of blessing but a singular means of deliverance. Now that seed was not through Ishmael, but instead through Isaac. So in in essence, when we look at chapters 25 to 35, the fruit of Isaac, Jacob and Esau, are really a continuation of the promised blessing of Abraham to Isaac. And in fact, the setup to this story in chapters 22 and 23 is both the faith and solidarity of Isaac when he was taken up to Mount Moriah and willingly sacrificed. You know, the emphasis there is that Abraham 
brought his son, his one and only son, and he was willing to sacrifice him, Hebrews tells us, because he believed that God was able to raise him from the dead. But we know that Isaac was probably between the age of 18 and 21 or 22. He was well able to overpower his 120-plus-year-old dad at this time, 121 or 22-year-old dad. So he willingly laid himself on an altar, allowed his hands and feet to be bound, and he was willing to be that sacrifice in obedience. So Isaac showcases in chapters 22 and 23 through his faith, because chapter 23 is then Abraham commanding his servant, unnamed servant, which was probably Elimelech, but his unnamed servant on purpose there, to go find a spouse for his son Isaac. And Isaac we find meditating in a field when this spouse comes to him. Remember what I told you, that that journey would have taken a minimum of seven months one way. So you're talking 15 to 18 months, maybe even two years of waiting for this bride to return. So Isaac is the main character that the narrative has led us up to. But you know me, in Pastor Ryan fashion, I'm trying to go through the whole text and kernelize the big picture for you so that the Holy Spirit can make applications. I don't want us to get lost in the saturation of details. And quite frankly, the, one of the reasons why I didn't preach this last week was because I did not have the peace about how to kernelize such a massive amount of information into a simple truths. Uh, but I believe God has given me that peace today. And so as we uh, think through this, um, I want to just kind of catch up to where we've been. Last time when we were in Genesis, we noted through the routine of life, that a faith grounded on our God of providence will always be rewarded. And of course, that comes directly through Isaac's willingness to be sacrificed, Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son, and then Abraham stood up in the midst of his grief and obeyed God to find a spouse for his son. And we, we find at the very end of chapter 24 that Isaac was also comforted after his mother's death. So the two, comfort, the two men that are our patriarchs of faith, they are, are grieving, they're in sorrow, and in a two-year grief process, Isaac is comforted because God has provided. And so the security that God's providence brings will bring reward, the reward of God's personal presence, the reward of God's uh, security, the peace of God that guards and keeps our hearts and minds, as Paul would tell the Philippian believers. And so, instead of searching for signs in the heavens, as we learned last time, we must trust in our God who provides daily. So we learned last time through Genesis 24 that genuine faith stands on God's providence awaiting God's reward. So that's where we were, okay? Now, based on the text today, and I'm going to read portions of it. Um, I'm not sure that we, we, can, we, we have the time to securely go through you know, a massive amount of text, okay? Even though I know I say all the time the most important thing I'm ever going to say is what the Bible says. So we'll do our best. I'll give you as much Bible content as I can to get through the message um, in the time that we have allotted. So what we have, though, is in Genesis 25, 19 through 26, 34, the theme is God's ability to expand his promise, secures his presence with his people. 
So what we've been talking about so far is this singular seed that has been through a singular person. But all of a sudden we get to Isaac and we're going to find in the story of chapter 25, Isaac doesn't have a singular seed. It was a little easier with Abraham, right? They had one kid through Sarah, the promised one. But with Isaac, there's twins in Rebekah's womb. So now you have, a, you have twins. Now, the promise is going to come through one of those boys. And, but both of those boys have the same promise of God's presence to secure their future. Both of those boys are going to be confronted with how they respond to God's faithful promise and his providential provision. One is going to respond positively. One is going to respond negatively. Now, the other thing that we're going to see, excuse me, hiccups again. I apologize. Not sure why I have those. But the other thing that we're going to see here um, is we're going to ask this question. If, if the text tells us, God's ability to expand his promise secures his presence with his people. What we're going to note is as the promise spreads out, because as the story progresses over 10 chapters, we got one guy named Jacob, right? We're going to see at the end of chapter 25 and 26 that Jacob is the guy. Okay, spoiler alert, right? Jacob is the guy, okay? But Jacob then has 12 sons, and the story is going to start going and we, like the typical humans we are, we're going to have a hard time following the single line, the single thread. And so what God is doing, he's expanding post-flood, filling and populating the earth and having dominion, and he's showcasing how his providential promise of provision of the seed to crush the serpent's head and bruise, but its heel will be bruised, it can be followed, trusted, and obeyed regardless of where we are in the expansion of humanity, okay? And we're going to see in the context as we, uh, we're going to ask this question, I'm going to go ahead and ask it this, how does the narrative then reveal the requirement of God's people to trust in God's promise by living in God's presence that secures their future? That question is, I'm posing that question because I've had a lot of time to meditate on chapters 25 and 26. And there's a, this is a dense statement. So the density of this statement comes this way. What we find in chapter 25 and 26 is God's expectation that the patriarchs, the patriarch of Isaac, Isaac would live in God's presence. In other words, he would live as if God is watching. He would live as if God is Lord of his life. He would live like his father Abraham lived, that, uh, as if God is securing his future. Okay, Can I put it this way? In the New Testament, Jesus' half-brother, half James, said, Show me your faith, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And then he gives two illustrations at the end of James chapter 3, uh, there, um, uh, the illustration of the patriarch and the prostitute. He sets uh, Abraham and Rahab together as being men and women of faith, but their faith was revealed to the world by their work, their obedience to God, okay? Abraham obeyed God by being willing to sacrifice his one and only son. 
He obeyed God by not being consumed with the things of the world, not caring about his, uh, his future in Canaan. He owned no property except for a, a, a cave in a field where he buried his precious princess Sarah, right? But God had promised him he would own all of it from the Nile to the Euphrates. So Abraham never saw that in his life. So he acted on that faith by trusting God and living like God was, was big enough to fulfill that promise. Isaac does the same thing. Now, we're going to find in Isaac's life, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point out some stuff, I think, that will be easy and clear to see. We're going to see right in the text that Isaac was, was no perfect man. Though he does some really good things that are mentioned in chapter 25, we find um, he also does some really bad things as the head of his home. And true to fashion, as we've studied these patriarchs, they are flawed and imperfect men and women. They make disobedient choices often as, as, sometimes as often as they make obedient choices. And Isaac and Rebekah, or Isaac, I should say, I'm going to put it on him, is no exception. All right? I'm also going to tell you this. Chapter 25 is a summary. Chapter 26, chronologically, in my opinion, and I think I have some solid biblical evidence for this, chapter 26 occurs before chapter 25. So we have to ask the question, why does the narrator give us this summary in chapter 25 and then discuss chapter 26, which happened before chapter 25? And the answer to that question is because he is trying to point something very important out. That is, when we trust in the God who makes his providential promises, and we know those promises might not be received visually, physically in this life, Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker was the Lord, right? Abraham was not enamored by the world. In fact, the, the whole heroes of the faith, quote-unquote, in Hebrews 11, have that same commonality. Back to my James illustration, the working faith of Abraham and Rahab, by the way, they're on the same table, the same plane. Why? Because Rahab believed God when he said, I will deliver you from destruction, and she hid the spies, and when the, the city, the walls of Jericho fall outward, not inward, outward, her little teeny hovel on the wall stays upright. And her faith was on par with Abraham's faith. There, that shows us that no matter what our past is, our present and future um, is equal with God. When we place ourselves in Christ by faith, we have equality one with another. Paul would tell that to the Galatians when he would say, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, bond, free, Scythian, slave, uh, male and female. He's not saying there's no gender. He's saying that, there's, that we're all equals regardless of how we distinguish ourselves. Are you following? And what is the big equalizing factor that that is that we place our faith in God's deliverer. In the Old Testament, is the seed that God would provide that would crush the serpent's head. In the New Testament, we know that seed to be Jesus. And when we get through chapter 35 and we start expanding on Jacob's family, we're going to find chapter 39 differentiates one of, one of Jacob's 12 sons as Judah, who is going to rule over his brothers, though he wasn't the oldest. Then we're going to find, and that is a kind of a wacky story. It's, it's a little bit 
rough to read, and we're going to study it. Then we're going to find that Joseph, the preferred son, Joseph ends the whole narrative as a man of faith. We're going to see sort of this expansion of the seed, but the seed is still selective and narrow through one person. So the point I think now is God is expanding the story in Genesis 25 and 26, but he wants us, the reader, to remember the singular point, and that's this. Sin destroys, God delivers. Because God delivers, we can trust in his promise. When we trust in his promise, we will live out our faith in God in his presence so that people will see that we are truly followers of, of God. And that, that visual way we're manifesting God and, and faith in God will actually secure our future. Sadly, in chapters 25, 26, 27, um, and then it shows up again in chapter 36, we're going to find that these two men that are Isaac's blessing, Jacob and Esau, one of them's secure future is a sad one. And the other one's secure future is one of blessing. I would, I would venture to say that here we get, the, we get that divine tension, okay? I'm not going to solve it today. I hope, I, I hope you understand. This is a purposeful divine tension. God's ways are not our ways, neither are his thoughts our thoughts, for they are higher than ours, says the Lord. I do not understand fully God's sovereignty, right? His sovereign choice and his offer of salvation freely to all, his universal offer. There is a universal offer and there's a sovereign choice and I do not understand them, but I see them. And when he makes a universal offer, he also makes everybody universally responsible and accountable. We know that in the New Testament, Paul would springboard off of that. Paul, a Jew of the Jews of the tribe of Benjamin, he was under the lineage of Saul, right? Could have maybe even been a king himself had Saul not strayed from God's directive. Paul, a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin, um, concerning the law, perfect. But Paul was a persecutor of the saints until he came to faith on that Damascus road. Paul suffered the consequences of choices against God, and he lived with those consequences to the end of his days, although he had great blessing because he chose to obey God. God's promises are meant for us to, to be lived out in God's presence, and it will secure our future. So we ask the question, how does the text do that for us? I've already introduced part of that. So the sweeping overview of God's provision for Isaac in chapter 24 continues in chapter 25, like I said, with an overview of their posterity, their twin sons. We'll find that chapters 25 and 6, like I said, are out of chronological order, but they are on purpose. So the reason is so that the summary of chapter 25 and the fake faith walk of Isaac seen in chapter 27 can inform our understanding of the rest of Jacob's story that runs through chapter 20, 35. Then, the foundation, uh, th then this is foundational to the rest of Genesis as narrative expands Jacob's posterity and ends with Joseph's story. So as we walk through the narratives of these two chapters and we ask this question, how does the narrative reveal the requirement of God's people to trust in God's promise by living in God's presence that secures their future? That is a densely packed question that hopefully will be explained as we get through the text. So 
as we answer this, this question, it is my prayer that we apply the truths we learn to our hearts and our lives today. Because, and here's the kernel of truth, our takeaway from the text, God expects every believer to live in his presence in a way that glorifies him to the world. So, there are two points today. And the two points cover the chapters distinctly. Verses 19 to 34, chapter 25, first, trust in God's promises offered to everyone individually. Who are the characters in chapter 25? That's a great question. Let's look at it, all right? I want to start with um, verse 12. I know I'm preaching on verse 19, but um, notice in verse 12, now this is the genealogy of Ishmael. Who is Ishmael? He's not the promised seed, okay? But he is part of the covenant blessing that God promised to Abraham. He is one of Abraham's sons, and thus we find in verses 12 through uh, verse 18, the normal life and death pattern, chronological pattern, and a blessing on Ishmael. We find Ishmael dies in the presence of all his brothers. He was 137 years old before he was gathered to his people. And notice in verse 16, there were 12 princes born to Ishmael. Now, this is not uh, ironic. This is purposeful. God makes of Ishmael a nation of 12 princes, God makes of Jacob a nation of 12 princes because God's blessing is mercy, grace, and equity. And there is an, a, 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 an equal measure of grace that is abundant on God's people. Even though Ishmael isn't the seed of promise, he becomes a nation of 12 princes. Okay? Now, is that, if we look back at the story of Hagar, we understand that that is a special provision for Hagar. Because that was a dumb choice for Abraham and Sarah, or Abram and Sarai, wasn't it? That was hurtful. Hagar and Ishmael were hurt because of that choice. Yet God in his mercy is able to step into human suffering, and he's able to pour out mercy and grace, and he's able to give abundant courage and strength to those who are suffering, even though they're suffering at the hands of someone they shouldn't suffer. So what we find, though, in this section is that, that this trust in God's promise is meant to be received and offered individually for everyone. Now, let's look at the characters then in verses 19 and following. This is genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Remember, this is a big sweeping overview. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was uh, 40 years old when he took Rebekah as his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea. So between verses 19 and verse 21, so 19 and 20 happen. Chapter 26 happens somewhere in there. Then chapter, verse, chapter 25, verse 21 happens. What we're meant to see here is Isaac was a meditator. He was a follower of God. He walked faithfully with God. And as a pattern in his life, he implored God to uh, knowing that God was the one who would bless the womb, that God was the creator of life. He went to God for that offer. He did something right. But we're also going to see he made some really bad choices as the head of his home. We're going to see that in the story. So, now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah his wife conceived, but the children struggled with, together within her, and she said, if, if all is well, why am I like this? 
So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, the Lord spoke to her, and now this is a very important prophecy, and it becomes fulfilled uh, in the life here of these two men. Two nations are in your womb, two peoples shall be separated from your body, one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them, okay? So um, we know he's 40 when he marries. He's 60 when they have this kid. So chapter 26 occurs in that 19 to 20 year period between when they got married and when they had this baby. Are you tracking? Oh, we'll keep going. Now the boys grew and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now this is where things start to go off the rails. Um, I, I hate to say this, but there is a probably a, a translation uh, slant in this text, um, and a lot of different, most of the translations will slant it this way. We Notice he says, um, it says that Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. Um, that phrase actually um, is translated primarily throughout the rest of the Hebrew Bible as he was a complete man or a man of integrity. In fact, it's, it's, it's used most of the time that way. So it's kind of a strange that it would be translated mild man. And unfortunately, Jacob has been thrown under the bus quite frequently by a lot of writers to be considered sort of this mealy mouse. You know, he wasn't really a man's man, you know. He was a little bit wimpy, right? I, I know I'm, I'm being facetious, but, but that's how this is taken. And that, that really shouldn't be taken that way. Because I think the text bears out, if, you, if we read the rest of the story of Jacob, that though he had his trouble and though he had his problems, he actually was the seed of promise. He actually um, makes some good choices. And this is where we see the divergent paths of Jacob and Esau by the very description of who they were. Esau was a rugged, tough and tumble. Um, he was a say it like it is, go out into the woods, you know, you know me kill, me eat right? Eat food now, right? That kind of thing. And unfortunately, we find, as the New Testament reveals to us, Esau was a man who, who lived for the now. He lived to satisfy his own pleasures. He dis disdained anything uh, that, was, that was part of the promise that was provided for him until it was too late. We're going to see that later on in the story. Here's the other thing that we find, verse 28. Isaac loved Esau. Rebecca loved Jacob. Now, if I don't say anything else this morning that rings your bell, may this ring your bell hard. Parents, don't play favorites. Please don't play favorites. The favoritism that is shown to this, in, in this, this family unit and relationship wreaks devastation in Jacob's own family and his life. To the point where you know the story, Jacob's own sons beat up and almost kill Joseph. In fact, if it weren't for Simeon, they would have murdered him and Judah. They both step in and they come up with this idea to sell him into slavery instead. 
and you know this favoritism that the family has fostered went to generational destruction okay here we have and now i'm i'm going to be a, a little bit sympathetic with rebecca here on this one because rebecca as mom knows what the promise is she knows she's married if you go back to chapter 24 she was told over and over and over again this guy is abraham's seed god has done something special for this guy and through your kids God's going to bless all the nations of the world, stars of the sky, sand of the sea, you name it. It is going to be a blessing. So she knows that she should be treating these men together. And if you notice, what was the promise? Two nations are in the, in the womb. Two people should be separated from your body. One people should be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. She received a word from the Lord directly from uh, the Lord himself, and who comes out grabbing onto the heel of his brother? Jacob. He is the younger, not the older. So she knows. Do you think she shared that with her husband? I, you better believe she did. Right? And yet we have this divergent path beginning to unfold. So the point that we see in chapter 25 is that trust in God's promise is offered to everyone individually. Isaac has a choice. Am I going to trust in God's promise? God has further clarified that the promise is going to come through the younger, not the older. Rebecca has a choice. Am I going to trust in God's promise? Am I going to follow my, my husband's leadership, um, even if it leads away from God's promise? And we're going to find that she actually obeys God and not her husband. I know it's going to get a little dicey. We're going to have to talk about some of the stuff that happens there, so I'm not going to justify wrongdoing or sin it's never right to do wrong to get a chance to do right one famous evangelist used to say okay um, but we're going to see how the, the this promise is offered to everyone individually and each one of them are going to have to wrestle with do i believe god do i obey god do i walk by faith even when it it's personally hard for me to do so rebecca isaac are faced with this promise Jacob and Esau are going to be faced with this promise. And so the end of this story is the beginning of trouble. Look at verse 29. Now Jacob cooked a stew. Esau came in from the field. He was weary. Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with the same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. This is a play on his name. Um, in, in the Hebrew, it's actually kind of blunt. You know, I kind of teased you about uh, Esau, but it really is. He comes in, he's like, stew, feed, eat me. That's pretty much what he's like. That's what he says. He comes and he's like, feed me food, eat. It's very staccato in the Hebrew. Um, and in other words, he's only thinking of his, his immediate hunger, his immediate passions, his immediate cravings. He wants what he wants and he wants it now, right? That's like the, the slick car salesman who says, what's it going to take for me to sell you the car today? after you sold them is not happening today. And they're going to bring in the closer and the, the second closer and the second closer is going to be like, what? what's it going to take for me to sell you today? And they bring in the third closer and eventually you're like three and a half hours of me saying, no, you're just going to walk out because they're, they're not going to stop. They're just going to keep on sending different people. They all have shiny smiles and good firm handshakes and they all want your money. <laughs> um, and, and, so that, and that's kind of the idea, right? He wanted to satisfy his flesh now. Okay, 
So as we look at this text, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau are all confronted with the need to trust in God's providential promise. They all respond in a way that secures their future. One individual's response to God's promise will secure uh, the future, excuse me, our individual response to God's promise will secure our future for good or ill. Now, um, I don't want to get too much in the soteriological weeds as to whether was, was Esau saved or lost. I don't know. That's not the point of the text at this point. The point of the text is, is what goes on and the divergent paths that these two men choose. Now, some have, again, uh, overbaked Jacob here. Well, Jacob, doesn't his ma- mean, uh, name mean supplanter or deceiver? Well, actually, it means he who grasps the heel. Um, it has been... It has been surmised that he was a deceiver, and, and he, does, he does participate in some deception um, encouraged by his mother later on in the story um, in chapter 27. We're going to see that. I'm not going to preach on that today. I want to expand on it more. But what we find is Esau is the emphasis in this passage. Esau comes in and says, food, feed, red, eat, me, now. I mean, you know, he's just like, hey, I, I have these cravings and I want them now. That birthright thing, pff, whatever, fine. Take the birthright, man. Just give me some stew. I'm hungry. It's more important to me than a future blessing. And he legally signs over his birthright. And we are told that, uh, we're told at the end of the story, the, the, the offender is that Esau despised his birthright. The text clearly makes Esau the villain, as it were, not the victim. He's the villain. He made a bad choice, okay? That becomes really important as we read the text later on. All right, so when we think about this and we look in light of this, God expects every believer to live in his presence in the way that glorifies him to the world. I don't have time this morning to go through the depth of application that maybe I would like to um, in each of your lives, but I can tell you we find as we go back into Romans, we go back into Hebrews, we find a description of Esau's character. And we find him being used as a comparative or a way that God shows his, his grace specifically to his special people. I'm going to highlight that later. Scripture says in other places, you know, Esau have I hated, Jacob have I loved. Obviously, God doesn't hate Esau. It's a, it's a superlative or a comparative, right? Just like when Jesus said um, in Luke chapter 15 or 16, um, if any man would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me, but he cannot follow me unless he first hate father, mother, sister, um, brother, houses, and lands. Are we supposed to hate our parents and our posterity? Of course not. He just said a few passages earlier that by this shall all men know you're my disciples. If you love one another, the hallmark of our Christianity and our discipleship in Jesus is our love for others. So what does he mean by saying hate? He means that your familial love, the intensity of your love for family, will look like hate compared to the intensity of your love for God. And that's what he means when he says Esau have I hated, Jacob have I loved. No, I chose, I chose Jacob. And, and we're not getting into the whole, well, did he foresee that Jacob? God is sovereign. God is everywhere in time because he's outside of it. He created it all, time, matter, energy, and space, and he exists outside of all of those things. So he doesn't see the end and the beginning like we do. He's not linear like we are. He's not bound by time. He's the creator of time. 
Okay, so to say that, well, God chose Jacob because he foreknew that Jacob would choose him. Is Jacob God? Is he? Is Jacob on the same level as God? Listen, we got to be real careful when we try to explain foreknowledge and we put man on the same par with God. We might as well become Pope papists, right? Pope speaks ex cathedra, therefore he speaks as the words of God, therefore anything the Pope speaks is true on par with the Bible. False. The Pope is a man. Right? His words need to be measured against the Bible, and if they disagree with the Bible, then the Bible wins. Right? So the foreknowledge, we have to, we have to understand what, what's happening here. What does the Bible say about Esau? He was a, Hebrews tells us he was a profane man. He sold his birthright for a bowl of lentils, red stew. If we were to fast forward um, to the end of chapter 26, when, verse 34, when Esau was 40 years old, he took as wives Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Why is he taking two wives? Why is he taking them of the Hittites? Does he care about his parents? No. Why? Because he is a profane, fornicative man. God is a thrice holy God. And when we step outside of his provision of eternal life and salvation, when we step out of the holiness that he provides through the seed, his son, Jesus, we put ourselves under the wrath of God in the sense of Scripture says in John 3.16, say it with me, that way I know you're all awake. Let's say John 3.16 together, ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We love that verse, don't we? It shows the universal offer of God through his wonderful son, Jesus, that whosoever will come to God can come to God through him, and he will save because Jesus is available to all. But read verses 17, 18, and 19. It says this, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Verse 18, He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Esau was a profane man. It's no wonder God loved Jacob because Jacob placed himself under God's authority and Esau rejected God's authority. Okay, so you understand what's happening there. And again, I'm trying not to chicken and egg this to, to death. Okay, I don't want to like foreknowledge, is it this or that? God's knowledge is outside of our foreknowledge or our understanding and predetermination or whatever you want to call it. Okay, so I want to move to the last point because my time is gone and I know I'm not doing justice as much to the text, but hopefully you'll read it. We'll catch up later. Number two, trust in God's promise is lived in the present um, and will secure our future, should say and there. Trust in God's promise is lived in the present and will secure our future. So 
when we truly trust in God's promise for us that we are saved through Jesus, satisfied in Christ, sanctified in him, then that, li- that life will be lived out and played out in the decisions we make. When we read chapter 26, Isaac and Abimelech, we get to know Isaac a little better. And remember, chapter 26 comes before he prays this prayer, his wife conceives, and he makes his decisions. So what we find, um, in fact, I've got some things for this. Let me just, let me just say what I'm going to say that's written down, and I'll say no more. Genesis 26, and this is a quote from a theologian. I, um, it's, this, is, this is the best said, so therefore I pulled it from him. Uh, this is from R. Kent Hughes, um, Genesis Beginnings, a commentary. Genesis 26 had to do with his learning that God was present with him. Isaac had to learn that God was present with him. We see this in three parallel declarations of God's presence in the, at the beginning, middle, and the end of the account. Okay? The first was future, verse 3. So look at chapter 26, verse 3. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. Okay? So God is going to repeat the promise to Isaac that was repeated to Abraham, and it's a future promise. He says, sojourn in the land, I will be with you. The second one is a present promise. Look at verse 24. It says, so when her days were fulfilled, I'm sorry, I'm I'm actually in the wrong chapter. Verse 24 of chapter 26 says, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear for I am with you. Okay, fear not, I am with you. Present tense. And then the third was past tense, and this is when the pagan king Abimelech uh, says in verse 28, we plainly see that the Lord has been with you. Now, I wish I could get into the weeds of the story of, of Abimelech, but you know the story. This is probably not the Abimelech who 80 years earlier had made a pact with Abraham. This is probably a dynasty name. So this is maybe Abimelech II or Abimelech III. Um, it could be that Abimelech, he would have had to be pretty long-lived. And, you know, living 150 years at that time wasn't out of the realm of possibility. We've seen that before. But it really doesn't matter one way or the other. But this Abimelech sees that Isaac, uh, Isaac comes into his land during a famine. God speaks to him and says, don't go to Egypt. He chooses, this is a good thing, he chooses because he knows God's promised his blessing in the future. He promises blessing in the present, and he, he uh, has blessed him in the past. Isaac chooses to stay in a place where there is famine. But he makes a stupid decision to say his wife is his sister. Sound familiar? Dad did it. Remember, dads, what we sow, we will reap, and oftentimes our kids will do what we did in spades. Um, Sarai was actually Abraham's half-sister. Rebecca's maybe a distant first cousin. They're not actually siblings. He's literally just straight up lying about this one. And um, the, the, there's actually a play on words. Abimelech just happens to look out of his kingly window, and he sees him laughing with his wife, Rebecca, and it's a play on his word, his name, laughter. It's a euphemism. He sees her doing things that husbands and wives do, looking out the window. It's a play on his name, meaning that only laughter would have done laughter with Rebecca. Are you tracking? Okay. It's just a really nice way of saying what he saw. And he's like, 
Why didn't, why'd you tell her he was a sister? Somebody would have, could have slept with her, and then we would have God's judgment. And all throughout chapter 26, you see this whole thing, sort of a repeat of the promise. Um, he goes and digs back up the wells, um, and he finally finds the seventh well, Sheva. He names it seven. And where is it? It's in Be'er Sheva. Okay, it's in the place of seven wells. Be'er Sheva is a very important place for the patriarchs, and this is finally where he chooses to dwell. So the whole point of chapter 26 is us then drilling down to Isaac's, Isaac's decision-making, but also seeing Isaac's poor leadership. Even though he's trusting God, he's still making some bad decisions, and they're going to come to haunt him. We already know from chapter 25, he gives preference to one of his boys over another. Favoritism is a bad, bad, bad thing. And by the way, his brother Ishmael probably had something to do with that. I have a feeling that Isaac really loved Ishmael. We find that Ishmael was a hunter, a mighty hunter. He lived off the land. Perhaps Esau reminded of his brother Ishmael. And so he was thinking, you know, I'm, he's favoring his brother Ishmael. And by the way, who doesn't like a little bit of venison, you know? A little elk. Um, I mean, it's pretty delicious. Um, I get what he's saying here, but, but he chooses one over the other. Um, so how Isaac related to and appropriated the reality of God's presence had everything to do with how he lived. And so it's with us. Isaac's response secured his posterity and set the tone of what we already saw in chapter 25, what will occur in the future chapters as we see his children wrestle with the same individual call to trust in God's providential promise. So God expects every believer to live in his presence and in a way that glorifies him. I'm done now. Are we ready? Conclusion. Today we've seen through the narrative of these two chapters, God's people are required to trust in God's promise by living in God's presence that secures their future. Now I realize we're not Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, but we have the precious promises of an eternal hope through Jesus Christ. We don't see the, the wealth or the grandiose environment that we might see when we're in heaven one day. I mean, the, the pavement is going to be made out of gold, guys. Okay? Forget calling, you know, the gold trust company and buying gold in little teeny bars. We're going to be kicking it around like rocks in the streets of heaven because the whole streets are going to be made of it, right? The foundations and walls are going to be made of precious stones. You know that little teeny little fleck thing that you gave to your wife to ask her to marry you? Literally, the foundations of a 1,200-mile long, wide, and tall city are going to be made with diamonds, Okay? We have a future that is far greater than anything we could accrue in this lifetime. So as we think about this, as I said, R. Kent Hughes in his commentary, Genesis, summarizes it this way, and I conclude, this is the Genesis reality. God is spatially all-present. There is no place where all of God is not. All of God is everywhere. We also believe that he is specially present to protect and bless his children. If you are one of God's children today, God is specially present with you. Yes, he's spatially everywhere, but he's specially present with you. And any view other than this is reductionist and idolatrous. Bible-believing Christians, this is what the scriptures teach and what we must believe. Do you believe that God is specially present with you? Do you live in light of his special presence? Or do you choose every day to put yourself, your selfish ambitions, your selfish desires, like Esau, are you living like a profane, idolatrous 
man? Are you a grief to your family or are you a blessing to God the Father? So in light of these dazzling realities, I must ask you three questions regarding future, present, and past. Number one, do you believe that God will be with you? Do you believe it? Teenagers, you're facing big choices. What do I do in my life? What do I do after high school? What do I do if, should I go to college? Should I not go to college? Should I join the military? Should I not? Should I become this or that? What, will you provide a spouse for me? Should I have a spouse, right? Do you believe God will be with you? Do you believe that he will be with you in what you're facing this week or this month or this year? Do you believe that God is with you spatially, especially right now in your hurt or your, your adversity? You see, God promises he'll never leave you or forsake you. Christian, we should not live as if God has left us because he hasn't. Therefore, when we live as if God has left us, we're actually the ones leaving him. By the way, we can't leave him because he indwells us. So we're literally dragging the triune, whole, thrice holy God of the universe where seraphim are standing before the throne crying out day and night, holy, holy, holy for all eternity. And we're dragging him into our refuse of sin everywhere we go because we've cho chosen not to believe that he cares in our times of hurt or despair. Do you believe that God has been with you all of these years in the ups and downs? Do you believe it? He's never left your side. And so, and more, do you believe it with all your soul, all your heart, and all your being? Then friend, do not fear. For those of you online, do not fear. Follow him with all your heart. Drink deeply from the wells of your salvation. God loves you. God's got a special plan with, for your life and he will specially be with you. Make the right choice. Choose individually today to put God first, to live like God is present with you and live in God's presence today. Let's pray.